0: Welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, a Friday edition. Here we are. We made it through another week. And uh, to finish out the week, I've got a very special guest, somebody I really trust when it comes to the FBI, to intelligence matters, to law enforcement matters, civil liberties matters. He's the former intelligence chief of the FBI, the former assistant director of the FBI, respected among all sides of the aisle, Democrats, Republicans, independents, FBI, DOJ, Why? He worked for Robert Mueller back when Robert Mueller was the FBI director. And he's the guy that, as the first intelligence chief for the FBI, uh, developed the rules, the regulations that the FBI was supposed to follow uh, uh, during the Russia collusion investigation, should be following now during the Capitol riots investigation. Now, he's retired. He's been out about 10 years. His name is Kevin Brock. You've probably seen him quoted in my stories before. Um, he's a straight shooter. He gives you the truth. He doesn't uh, color it with politics. He doesn't color it with innuendo. He just basically calls it like he did when he was the assistant director for intelligence back in a time when the FBI gained a lot of street cred uh, with the way they were fighting the war on terror, uh, trying to balance uh, civil liberties and the patri- against the, the incredible tools that the Patriarch gave the FBI to fight terrorism and other things. And Today, we're going to talk to him about a few things. One, we're going to talk to him about all of the tactics that are being discussed publicly about how the FBI is going about investigating the Capitol riots, and specifically... Uh, phone records of, of members of Congress, we've heard some reports of that, uh, bank records that maybe credit card transactions that had been obtained. We've been looking into this, haven't been able to get very good answers yet, but he should be able to help us understand that. And then, of course, you've seen him quoted in my stories before, but all the evidence that we now have about how the FBI conducted itself during the Russia probe well, he's going to help bring that to life for us and help explain it to us in a in a way that I think you'll understand it. He's a G-man. He's from the inside. And uh, like I said, one of the most respected FBI agents in the last quarter century. Just somebody who did his job really well without po- uh, politics, without uh, any of the baloney, just trying to get the job done for the American people. So Kevin's going to join us in a few minutes. Now, before we do that, a couple of things. I want to give you a little heads up on some of the stuff I'm working on. I always try to make the podcast an area where we can learn about something before it happens, right? So uh, in the next 24 hours, hopefully uh, by the time Saturday rolls around, we're going to be able to advance the reporting we've done on Congresswoman Deb Holland's uh, nomination to be the Interior Secretary. This is a historic nomination. Uh, Congresswoman Holland is a member of the Pueblo uh, Nation uh, and would be the first Native American, to ever hold a cabinet secretary. That's something we can all be proud of, regardless of your political stripe. That's an amazing new accomplishment, something new, and uh, another glass ceiling smashed. Uh, but as I have dug into her nomination, as we've done to all of the nominees, by the way, we do this for every nominee. She has uh, raised some red flags and have done this for 30 years because her finances keep moving around. And when you run for Congress, you file an ethics report, and you're supposed to truthfully report your revenue, your income, your sources of income. And then when you become a nominee for something like a cabinet secretary, you fill out an office of government ethics form. It's slightly different, a little more extensive than um, what uh, a congressperson normally fills out. But at the end of the day, I've been looking at these, and there's been amendments. And you know, she started uh, telling Congress that in 2018, the last year she was in the private sector before she... Uh, became a congresswoman and then the interior secretary nominee, that she made about $30,000 of income that year. That's a small amount for someone running for Congress, but okay. Then she changed it back in December. She changed her form after two years and said, no, 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 it was closer to $46,000. And she added uh, a form of revenue, took some stuff off it. She also belatedly disclosed some loans, debts that she's had, which she was supposed to disclose, student loan debt then uh, last week she went no 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 I got that wrong again it wasn't 30,000 it wasn't 46,000 it was only $4,000 say what only $4,000 i uh that's a big change that's a you know one tenth of what you just reported a couple of weeks before and now uh just the news has learned and has confirmed that uh, Congresswoman Holland, the interior secretary, has changed her story again. Now she's telling senators, no, 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 I only made $2,250. Now that's one-sixth the poverty rate for an individual in America. It really raises questions. How the heck did she travel and run uh, across the uh, country and run for Congress? on uh, making two grand a year. So the numbers have been bouncing around. The sources of income have been bouncing around. And now I am told We're going to learn something about her tax returns that was not public, that the Senate did not make public prior to um, the uh, nomination being forwarded out of the Senate Energy Committee yesterday to the full floor. If you check, go to justthenews.com tonight. Go look at the top of the site. I'm pretty sure by then we'll have this story nailed down. But the mystery around Congresswoman Holland's finances her ethical re- obligations to file an accurate ethics financial disclosure report, whatever you want to call it. It's getting deeper, this mystery. We're not sure what's going on, but this is a woman that's going to oversee billions of dollars of revenue from oil and gas leases on public lands, billions of dollars of cost, um, because the Interior Department is a big agency. It's got the National Park Service. It's got uh, many other uh, important agencies that that uh, uh, manage our public lands, and Um, she's not even been able to get the most basic of her own financial reporting right. And the question now becomes, if you can't get this right, how can you get it right at the agency? We're going to try to answer all those questions for you. We're doing the reporting right now. Even as I'm reporting this podcast, we're digging in, we're learning. And uh, you're going to be the first to know about it. You're going to get the information before anyone else. That's what we do at Just the News and why we have this John Solomon Reports podcast. All right, now uh, one more before we go to the commercial break and then we're gonna come back with Kevin Brock, the former intelligence chief of the FBI. I promise uh, you're gonna uh, you're going to love what he has to say. We're gonna learn a lot from him. Uh, I always do when I talk to him. But before we do that, I wanna point out one other story. My good colleague, Daniel Payne, I think we had him on the show recently. Uh, he has done some really great work on uh, what the government knew at the beginning of the pandemic about potential problems. And there are lots of problems, right? You don't expect to learn everything right away when there's a new virus, something as deadly as COVID was. But uh, there appears to have been some apathy and some concerns about some of the red flags that were being uh, raised. One of them is, you know, what is the origin of this uh, virus? Did it come from a lab or did it come naturally from uh, nature, from animals, evolved from animals? Uh, But another one that's lingered around has been is the COVID test that we all took for the last year, if we thought we had COVID. You know, the, uh, there's two versions of the test, the instant test and then the what's known as the PCR test that you wait a lot longer for. We now know for sure uh, from the CDC that the instant test had some, a, a record of false positives and also missing uh, real cases. And there were some adjustments made Uh, back um, at the end of last year. You you can read that on Just the News. We've written about that. But there's been a question about what has always been widely considered the more uh, reliable test, uh, which we call the PCR test. You swab your nose, goes to a lab for a few days, they culture it, come back, and they tell you, you got COVID or you don't got COVID. Well, uh, recently, through the good work of Judicial Watch, our good friend Tom Fitton, the Daily Caller Foundation, they got some FOIAs, and these FOIAs are between... Anthony Fauci's office, Dr. Fauci at the NIH, and a lab, an important lab out in Milford, Connecticut, by the way, right where I, near where I grew up, called the Milford Molecular Diagnostics Laboratory in Milford, Connecticut. And in this, there are some messages from one of the key scientists there uh, back in March of last year at the beginning saying, hey, there are some problems with the PCR test. We're seeing a lot of false positives and we're seeing some positive tests that are positive people that aren't getting detected by the test. We think there needs to be some adjustment. And the person who did this was um, uh, the director of the lab. His name is Sin Hong Lee. And uh, he writes this morning and he warns Fauci, hey, there's something going on here. This is still being debated now, by the way. And we're in now 2021, a year later. There's still some questions about what the government's known about the quality of the testing. But um, uh, he wrote... Uh, Fauci and laid out the concerns about the false positives, the missed positives, and he said, "quote Without a reliable laboratory diagnostic test, we are flying blind." It's a very powerful statement by a you know pretty accomplished scientist. And according to Dr. Lee, because we reached out to him, there has been no response. Dr. Fauci just simply didn't respond to something. Now we know this because we have these documents. From the government and uh, we interviewed um, uh, Lee. In fact, uh, our good colleague Daniel Payne uh, interviewed him and he really talks to uh, how important this is uh, to get this right and um, he said PCR is just like a Xerox copier that can be made, uh, make numerous copies of uh, a specific segment of DNA for analysis and if you don't get the right mix, right, if you don't weed it out, you can get false positives. And so uh, he has raised some concerns that, that the agency never got back to him, that Dr. Fauci, he has released a more complete letter than what we got from Freud. He released the unredacted version of the letter. And you can just learn a little bit more about the science and the reliability. Uh, just take a look at this story. It's just one of many things we're learning about Dr. Fauci's administration of NAID, NIH, the main infectious disease agency in America. Uh, good work here by Daniel Payne. It's why we do FOIA, why we do this work. Uh, take a look at it. I think when history looks back, we're gonna find out some of the testing numbers were erroneous. Uh, we know some of the nursing home deaths were right. We know Andrew Cuomo hid those, maybe some other governors who did that. Now the question is, did we over or undercount the total number of COVID cases? Why is that important? You gauge the public response to a pandemic based on what you're seeing in the data of the testing. And if the testing isn't 100% reliable and you're getting false positives or you're missing positive cases, because both seem seem to be flagged in this memo, uh, there is uh, public policy is misled by that. It isn't fully informed by that. So that's why we wrote the story. Listen, we reached out to Dr. Fauci, to his agency. We got crickets. No one's responding. We're still going to dig into this. We're not trying to create a scandal we're just trying to inform the american public but go check out this great story it's done uh, by my good colleague daniel Payne. he's done a lot of good work and we think it will be very uh, uh, good reading for you and it's just something to learn about we all need to learn from this pandemic so we learn from the things we did right and the things we did wrong and uh, the testing issue is still one that we're not from our reporting and certainly from many of the scientists we're talking to it's not clear yet whether we had the most accurate tests or whether we can make them more accurate with things we've learned over the last year. That's what this story is about. That's what Dr. Lee's interview is about. All right, I'm going to go to that commercial break. When we come back, Kevin Brock, my good friend, former intelligence director of the FBI, one of the most um, wise people on things, law enforcement, intelligence, civil liberties, because he cares about them. Um, We're going to talk with him and uh, try to bring up the speed on both Russia and the Capitol January 6th riots. Uh, But first, a commercial break. Remember, if you like what we do at Just the News, support our advertisers and sponsors like the ones you're about to hear from. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado
1: for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are.
0: all right folks welcome back from the commercial break and as promised a very special guest somebody who served this country so ably for a long time inside the fbi was the first fbi assistant director for intelligence his name is kevin brock one of the smartest guys i know in town kevin welcome to the welcome to the show
1: you're making me blush john thank you thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> i occasionally do that i don't know how that happens but um but i, I sincerely mean that it's um uh, over the years, I've been blessed to meet a lot of amazing people in law enforcement. And, uh, but uh, you have always been a straight shooter, and I know no matter who I talk to, on what side of the political I talk to, they really hold you in esteem, and I trust your opinion. And I think that's that's a re- remarkable legacy of of your career at the um, at the FBI. So thank you for joining us.
1: Well, thank you so much for the kind words, and uh, my, oh, since we're complimenting each other, thank you also for you know the work you do, a valuable. A valuable piece of the puzzle for our for our democracy to work, and uh, journalists of your integrity that really hunt for the truth, the ground truth is, is so
0: critical. Yeah, thank you. It's funny. I grew up in a law enforcement. Family. I was always around FBI agents my whole life, and I I love the FBI. I I saw frontline agents work their um, their magic every day, help my dad self cases, other people solve cases, and. Uh, there it's an amazing group of people that work there and you know this era in the Russia kind of complicated things but uh, it's still a great agency and it does amazing things every day and I know you know that because you you help lead it and um, sometimes people yeah. read my story and they think I'm an FBI hater and I'm not I love the FBI I've been fascinated about my whole life but there was a period in 2016-17 where things got a little sideways I think I think that's what we're gonna learn when we're all done
1: yeah I, I... I agree. Obviously, you and I have had long conversations about this. I have a tremendous love for the organization. I devoted nearly a quarter century to it. And and I believe strongly in the value of the FBI to our democracy. It's one of the jewels of our democracy because it had created a reputation well-deserved for impartiality and objectivity. And when that was trifled with, by a few people at the top for a period of time, uh, we had to call it out and uh, and it, it, it had to be addressed. and I and I think it has. I think history will will recognize it as an anomalous period of time. Hopefully,
0: I think you're right. I think you're right. And you know, when I talk to agents today, things are buttoned up. There's not some of the looseness that was going on, and that's a good thing for for America. The FBI has been on the front lines again, as they always are, and whenever there's a big event, Uh, January 6th, the Capitol riots. We saw Christopher Wray and uh, some of his deputies testify this week and give some pretty compelling testimony. As someone who participated in such big investigations, this is a unique situation because you've got the executive branch uh, investigating something that involves another branch of government. Capitol, it's the people's house, it's the Congress. Um, from all the stuff that you've seen and learned, what 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 do you think are some of the highlights of what the FBI's done? And what we're learning about this case, and then there's been you know some talk about civil liberties and bank records and phone records of Congress. You There are really strict rules, and people should know how strictly that's governed, and the FBI follows those rules pretty carefully, I think.
1: Absolutely. And again, um, addressing the, the baseline violations that the FBI would look at in this situation, uh, they're well-established. They include um, statutes. That we refer to as crimes on a government reservation, which the capital certainly is, right. assault on a federal officer, <laughs> which a, a congressman or congresswoman is. So there are well established jurisdictional reasons why the FBI takes a lead on this investigation. And uh, setting aside separation of powers, uh, that really doesn't come into play when you're evaluating the actions of the violent actions of, of uh, individuals. On a government reservation, which happens to be the capital in this instance, right. and threatening, you know, bodily harm to to members of Congress and those who are there protecting the uh, the capital. The police officers there, police officers there, are all federal officers. So there's ample jurisdiction. There's ample grounds for conducting the investigation. There's a lot of talk about, uh, and I think Director Ray was that specifically, do you consider this an act of domestic terrorism? Right. Um, you know, those are evaluations that can be made, and we can talk about that a little bit in depth if you'd like. So in, in summary, there are, there are plenty of powerful federal statutes that the FBI can apply against the rioters uh, January 6th at the Capitol. Um, whether or not it is classified as a domestic terror incident is almost beside the point uh, right now, right. Um, they can they can pursue based on those statutes um, if they find that there is some organizing principle behind it where they could identify some type of organization and apply RICO statutes. Uh, then, you know, that that gets closer to using a tool that's designed specifically for for a terrorism. Uh, but the FBI bottom line has a lot of options here to prosecute uh, those who are violent.
0: Yeah, and, they, and they've they been real aggressive. I mean, there's two 300 cases already, which is really remarkable given that it's only four or five weeks uh, from the episode. And so uh, they're clearly busy at work and a lot of resources. People, you, are, you know, there's some on the right and the left, they debate this domestic terrorism thing. But from a legal standpoint, beyond the criminality, what would a domestic terrorism uh, designation do to help the FBI better investigate beyond what they're already doing?
1: Mainly... It is a designation that allows the FBI to conduct a, a an intelligence investigation ahead of time. You'll remember after nine uh, eleven, the the big outcry was, well, we have to make the FBI a, a, an agency that uh, doesn't just react to terrorism but actually tries to prevent it. Right. It, it was a dumb comment, frankly. It came from the Attorney General at that time. Right. Uh, you know, I spent most of my career working, frankly domestic terrorism. And um, that was always our goal was to find it and stop it before anything bad happened. And we were quite successful at doing so. So we would do that through a mechanism called a domestic terrorism intelligence investigation. And um, and there we could use the powers of the FBI domestically to collect intelligence based on adequate predication that an individual or a group of individuals was about to commit acts of violence and had the capacity to do so, to do so. and um, it was it was de- it was called domestic terrorism because usually the there was some an animating narrative behind there that was based on some type of ideology, nationality, ethnicity, uh, religion, uh, social cause, um, but 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 that was that was only part of the. The, the presence of that would allow us to conduct the intelligence investigation. When it came to uh, making arrests and indicting people, we would rely on other established federal violations, to include bombings and and or you know, preparing IEDs and right. and, and, and um, or attacks on federal property and and uh, and that type of thing. There, there, there really is no gap between the violent act and domestic, domestic terrorism designation. There, there, as I said before, there are plenty of federal statutes to arrest people and put them in jail, uh, without, without defining it, without passing a domestic terrorism law. I know that's part of the discussion right now. Perhaps it is prudent, but, um, but I don't want Americans to have the impression that, absent some domestic terrorism law that the FBI has no weapons at its disposal has ample.
0: Yeah, no no doubt and they, they do and they've been using them. You can see it. It's been very effective. Um there's been a lot of talk and you know some members of Congress say there there was an intelligence failure and of course there's a lot of evidence in the court files now that say this was premeditated, pre-planned, but we also see the FBI came forward on the 4th the 5th uh, and, and warned, uh, the joint terrorism task force in Washington, which would get it to the Capitol police would get it to the U S attorney's office. From all we've learned thus far, when you look at this, uh, do you think this will be an intelligence failure or will it be the FBI provided the intelligence and some political figures, uh, didn't act aggressively enough on it? What do you, what do you see from the evidence you've been able to watch thus far?
1: Yeah. And of course I don't have insight anymore into the, uh, inside baseball of what happened before inside the FBI right. but based on what I've read comments that the director Ray has made, uh, the um, you know the discovery that a, a, uh, an intelligence bulletin was issued ahead of time um, it, it proves once again John that after some calamitous event, we will always, you can write this down, we will always find a breakdown or some failure in connecting the dots. There are just so many dots. There's so many, so much noise out there. It's very difficult uh, to, to, uh, to prevent, believe it or not. And and it should be a comfort to your listeners uh, because it doesn't get a lot of publicity. There are scores of terrorist events um in this country that are prevented every year yeah and we before, never hear about but,
0: them right yeah they just yeah
1: yeah be, before the boom there are a lot of people that get arrested thank yeah, goodness and we are grateful uh, and that is because there's an intelligence a network of sources set up there are you know uh sensors uh, out there that can alert law enforcement ahead of time social media obviously is a huge Big one yeah. open open source treasure trove of intents of, of people who want to do um do violence. Uh, The the Bureau is a little bit, I'll be frank, is a little bit hamstrung in its ability to exploit open source intelligence on social media because there is a large, robust, and rightful uh, civil liberties, privacy, advocacy, um, uh, you know, voice out there that needs to be heeded and needs to be paid attention to. Um, But there are oftentimes in plain sight indicators that uh, you know, there are people out there who are talking about doing violence and have the capacity to do so. So there are a lot of factors that come into play as to if and when and how uh, law enforcement reacts to that. Um, and um, and so you're going to see instances like the riot on, on Capitol Hill, where we can look back with clarity of hindsight and wonder why certain things were missed. Yeah. Um, so uh, unfortunately, that's a. The, the bureau tries to do the best job it can. Uh, the FBI is getting a lot of pressure right now as to why domestic terrorism seems to be uh, increasing and spiking
0: <clears throat> right.
1: uh, recently. And I'll comment on that briefly for you. I'd love to hear um, what you're thinking on that. Yeah, yeah. When I was a young agent back in the late '80s and early '90s, working domestic terrorism on one of the first joint terrorism task forces, um, we the FBI, uh, I can say proudly, did an excellent job at crushing, basically, uh, the white supremacist anti-govern- violent anti-government movement that had reared itself back in the 1980s um, with uh, Aryan Nations, right. uh, the Order, other violent groups. um the Bureau did a great job of infiltrating that movement and basically decimating it through RICO statutes and arrests from all over the country, infiltrating violent militias and that type of thing. And it went dormant for quite a while. 9-11 hits, FBI swings its turrets towards international terrorism. right? And that, that became where resources were marshaled. And so, you know, resources are limited. They're not unlimited. And so we saw a creeping back of, of uh, the extreme uh, white supremacist, anti-government, virulent, violent uh, rhetoric and action, uh, you know, raise its ugly head. And so it's, it's a little bit of a fact of life in the law enforcement intelligence community that... Um, you know, you do the best you can to cover the waterfront, but at times your resources have to be marshaled where the threat is perceived to be the greatest. And those adjustments are made on the fly. And oftentimes, sadly, they're made because something
0: bad happens. Yeah, that's right. It becomes a trigger. and uh, But there, 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 you can see that the FBI was watching very closely. There was testimony last year, and they were starting to get a good grip on this extremism movement, I think. We're going to get a complete story of what happened here. There, there's a second piece of this is even if the FBI gets it right, did, did the people who managed Capitol Hill take the proper precautions? And I think it's going to take us some time to understand what they knew and how they understood it when they knew it uh, to, to assess that. But um, it's been really, I've read almost all of the indictments. I've read about 210 of the the mm. charging papers and you can see the fbi had a, a tremendous dragnet and they were picking things up and and, and running them down pretty quickly so uh,
1: well fortunately another truism i found in my career uh when you're you were dealing with individuals like this uh most of them didn't grow up as criminals yep. they're not a criminal they don't have a history of necessarily being part of the criminal element. But they get charged up about a specific issue or cause or whatever, and they start to cross the line. Yep. they're not, frankly, uh, very adroit as far as covering their tracks That's or or obfuscating themselves. So, so it's not that it really isn't that difficult to track them down and and make those arrests. And yep. uh, so.
0: One one probably really good r- rule of thumb is if you're going to commit a crime, you probably shouldn't videotape yourself and put it up on social media because you're almost certainly going to get caught. <laughs> and, and that's what happened here. It kind of gets to the naivety of some of the people that were involved. Um, it
1: uh, it it makes it makes you scratch your head. It but does. It luckily does. for law enforcement, people just do dumb things
0: when they yep. commit crimes. Yeah, so. that's true. Well, there that's. Uh, every person who participated, that deserves to be punished to the fullest extent. And that's good to see that's happening. I want to pivot to one of our other favorite subjects, because you have helped me try to understand over the last few years, the the Russia case. And as we get more and more documents, we get a more complete picture. And this past week, I kind of went through about almost about 6,000 pages of documents that were declassified over almost a three-year period and put them into a timeline and try to understand Mm -hmm. the, the, how the Russia collusion case became what was. And uh, it, it's now clear to me that from the very beginning, the FBI knew that that Hillary Clinton might be pulling a dirty trick on Donald Trump, vilifying him, as I said. CIA warns about that. Steele walks in anyways. They find out that Steele has got some bad information. They find out that Carter Page, the guy they're most looking at, actually is working for the CIA. He's a good guy, not a bad guy. And and this case just keeps going on and on, and and, and it advances in the absence of any evidence of wrongdoing and in in and in the uh gathering of a significant amount of innocence and I, I think people are asking I, I get this question all the time how could that have happened and is it political bias is it um, incompetence is it uh, something more manipulated you've seen a lot of this and you, you've been one of the most uh, strong voices on this how do you think the FBI got itself into the mess that is Russia collusion that's that's such a great question <laughs>
1: and I and I hope we're going to to get to the, and I have a, I have a, uh, as you can imagine, <laughs> based on the discussion, I have an answer for you on that. Um, let me add one other tagline though, just before sure. I jump into that, uh, just cause I don't want to leave your listeners with the impression that the FBI, um, cause it, it does dovetail into what we're just about to talk about. I don't want to leave the impression that the FBI is investigating one group of people and not a group uh, investigating another group yeah, that's a great of people point to make. based on, on ideological proclivities. Right. We have, right. as Americans, just gone through a year of incredible violence in our cities, um, you know, that largely fomented by individuals identifying themselves or aligning themselves with what they call the Antifa movement. Right. Um, and um, and I think it's safe to say probably none of them were Trump supporters. Yeah, that's so, probably true. So the Americans are left wondering, well, is there going to be the same energy applied to the assaults on federal buildings and federal property and, and the destruction of property in these uh, cities uh, against those types of ideological violent, violent actors right. as there is on uh, those who storm the Capitol? And, and um, I feel uh, confident that the FBI is doing what it needs to do to uh, investigate the violent actors uh, this summer, identify them, get them indicted federally where they can, get them indicted on state laws where it's more appropriate. Uh, the, The wild card is, particularly on the federal side, is prosecution because it's yep. a two part equation. You can do the investigation. You can identify, establish a probable cause, get them arrested. But they still have to be prosecuted yep. by the justice department. Somebody has to get them convicted. Yep.
0: That's right. So
1: it's really going to be up to the justice department at this point to show uh, even handedness in the application of, of uh, federal law, where, where it can be uh, through all the violent actions we've seen all summer long and up through January 6th. Okay. That covers that. Now, um, John, I I am firmly convinced that um, we had about four or five individuals in the FBI, uh, starting with James Comey, Andrew McKay, Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, perhaps James Baker. I'm still trying to understand where he fit on there. And perhaps Bill Priestap, although I think Priestap is... Uh, has become more pragmatic. He might have, he might have gotten overpowered by the the people in the front office, uh, but they took it upon themselves to launch an investigation of a presidential campaign without adequate justification under the FBI and the Department of Justice own guidelines uh, to start an investigation. I've read the documents. I know the Attorney General guidelines. I helped modify them when I was Assistant right. Director to. Uh, and when we strengthened our policies and procedures around the use of confidential human sources, I know what a good <laughs> good investigation looks like. And uh, I ran into counterintelligence investigations and uh, in a counterintelligence squad. I know the hurdles you have to get over, and none of them were present uh, in, in, that, in their opening documents. So it was a deficient, defective investigation from the get-go. Therefore, everything that sprang from that is, um, to use the analogy of fruit of a, a poisonous tree under the law right. is a, kind of along that line. So the follow on FISA investigation of Carter Page, uh, all the, um, all of the, uh, consensual monitoring recordings that Stefan Halper did with, uh, Papadopoulos and Page, all of that stuff is fruit of the poisonous tree in my mind and should not have been done, um, the FBI had ample opportunities to walk away from this investigation given the facts that they were provided. Uh, not only did they not walk away, they had one of their attorneys uh, falsified evidence. Yeah. And so it's, it's very damning uh, against this circle of uh, actors inside the FBI who abused FBI authority and, and, and stained the reputation of the FBI to the detriment of the American people.
0: Yeah, it, it really is remarkable the legacy it's going to leave behind. And um, as I as I dug through these things, you, you know, the props the, the, the one document among all the others that spoke to me was when Agent I think his name was Barnett, the guy who ran the um, uh, the Mike Flynn part of the Russia case, when they finally got to interview with the Justice Department with no FBI people keep, uh, getting him in the way. He, he said, listen, there never was evidence of collusion. And this was like a bad game of Clue, which is you can just put two people in a room and say, well, that has to be conclusion. Collusion, that must be a <clears throat> conspiracy. And he he really mocked the mentality that kind of took over the Bureau and the Justice Department for a narrow period of time. And he, this is a you know guy that knows the he knows the guide. And to yep. me, it really spoke volumes that the agents on the front lines knew exactly how flawed this was. And they couldn't get their bosses to follow the rule. Do you think, from what you've seen, that there were more criminal acts committed beyond um, what uh, Kevin Kleinsmith has been charged with doctoring the the evidence?
1: I have grave concern that the court was defrauded intentionally, yeah. um, and in order to keep the FISA going, John, there was there was really no reason, even if you could make a passable argument for the first application, the three renewals based on what the FBI knew and yeah. had in hand it is, is, is are fraudulent on the yeah. court. Yep. And, um, and so the, the, ter- for Durham is going to be proving intentionality on that. Um, I think there's opportunity for that. Um, and, and if there, if there is, then, you know, I, I pray that, uh, charges will be brought so that we can we can write that ship again. Um, and one of the most damning statements, and I, I'm, I believe you're the one that kind of pointed it out or, or surfaced it. Uh, it was on the second or third renewal right. when James Comey admitted to the director of national intelligence yeah. that the steel dossier was, uh, flawed and, and not sufficient, uh, you know, evidence, uh, to proceed on, but the very same day that he communicated that to the DNI, he signed off on another extension of the Feist on Carter page, which was based on
0: it's on the
1: dossier. Yeah. So that, if I'm during I'm looking that very, very closely.
0: Yeah, that seems to be a critical piece of evidence. And that same day, it's remarkable, January 12th, it could be a day of infamy when people look at the, the context of this case. Uh, he tells, uh, Columbia tells Copper it's not sufficiently, uh, corroborated. He then signs, a, a, a warrant, uh, the first renewal, second warrant, uh, for the application. And that same day, the CIA <clears> provides <throat> a document to the FBI saying, we have now confirmed that one prominent statement in Christopher Steele's dossier was Russian disinformation inserted by Russian intelligence into Steele's network. If that is, and, and they don't tell the court that either. It's, um... It just makes you wonder how that could all happen on one day and no one say, what are we doing here? You have said before, and I I thought this was early on as I was still trying to figure out what went on. You said something that was really a red flag to you, and that is most counterintelligence investigations originate in the field. They stay in the field. They get supervised from afar. That's right. This one, like the Clinton email case, too, they got sucked into Washington. When you look at that, what does that tell you was going on at headquarters?
1: That there was some type of agenda. Yeah. Uh, that an, an inappropriate agenda beyond uh, an objective uh, intelligence or criminal investigation. Um, I, I I struggle to find any other explanation. Uh, any other explanation just doesn't pass the smile test. Yeah. Um, I mean the the glaring the the steel dossier for an experienced counterintelligence agent in the field was blinking red lights, Russian disinformation campaign. Yep. And yet you're going to have the highest levels of the FBI executives use that to to create a, an investigation. I mean, even if they did, John, they, they could have legitimately opened up a Russian counterintelligence investigation, which they do routinely on on Russian activities in this country and then gone to Papadopoulos or Page or others and said, hey, it looks like you're getting flirted with by the Russians. Yep. We just we want to give you a heads. Have you have the have they contacted you? We want to give you a heads up of the danger of that. This is a presidential campaign. It would be a curty a courtesy, a normal courtesy of the FBI to do something like that. Yep. But they chose not to. They chose instead to open up cases on these individuals based on nothing.
0: It's really remarkable. And when I hear you say that, it really is that it is that glaring <laughs> too. It's really what happened, and it, uh, it, yeah. So the, I have
1: no other explanation, John, yeah. uh, other than somebody had, somebody had an outcome that they wanted
0: to engineer. Yeah, that's uh, for the more people I talk to, and even people in the know now that are cooperating with um, with uh, the Durham investigation. That seems to be looking back. Boy, I can see now we were we were we were creating a ride that should have never been taken. And I think that that's uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting to see people now look back at their conduct and begin to assess it. Uh, when you look at what Chris Ray has done, I know uh, Republicans have been frustrated by the flow of documents. That's one issue, and that, that works itself out, and the president solved that when he declassified the last of the documents. But when you look at some of the changes he's made in the FISA process and, and other things, do you feel good about uh, whether uh, he's put enough protections in place that this can't be repeated, or can it still be repeated because the mindset hasn't been punished?
1: I think he has done a reasonable job of, of all of that, um, and there are things behind the scenes that are, that, that are, are taking place. I, I, uh, I have been in audiences um, where the director has spoken, uh, not open to the press, right. that reassured me greatly that he was uh, just as taken aback by all that occurred uh, under the Comey uh, administration, uh, than I am, uh, so I I'm heartened by that. Uh, he is, he does have legitimate um, legal and and going back to separation of power issues that he has to be mindful of, um, uh, and that I don't believe he's using as a, as a crutch to hide information. Uh, there are legitimate concerns about fbi tools methods technologies right. and need, prote- need yeah. protection so he walks a fine line there i see nothing that uh concerns me i would love the fbi in general to uh as you and i have discussed, just rip the band-aid off and get yeah. <laughs> get all this stuff out and say hey look this was, this stuff was bad it happened we're taking steps to, and here's what we've done to make sure that it'll never happen again. One of the steps that Christopher Ray did take is he, he made sure it is now ingrained in policy. Headquarters is not going to run these types of investigations. Yeah, that was
0: a big so, change. He deserves a lot of yeah. credit for that because that does change the temptation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's funny. I've talked to some agents on the front lines, and I think when he first took over in 1718, he he just couldn't believe this happened, and I don't think he originally did believe it until the evidence started to come forward. And I think over time he's come to understand that there there were some bad eggs who did some bad things, and he wants nothing more of it. And I I, I think history will look back more kindly than some of the Republicans are looking at him right now. They're frustrated because of the battles over documents and stuff, but um, it does seem like he's he's sent a very direct message to the team that's left there. We're not doing this again.
1: I believe so. And there's always going to be a tension between uh, the legislative oversight of Congress, which is legitimate. They pay the bills. Uh, They need, they need to have answers. But a lot of what you saw in the testimony last week was, frankly, political grandstanding. A lot of these questions could be asked, could be asked and answered in 100%. closed session, and, and, and get the answers that they need. But they're, you know, politicians are going to be politicians, and they're going to try to score points with their uh, constituents and, and interest groups. And and Christopher Ray knows that. He yeah, does, he does. he's he's not, not naive. He knows he's going to be caught in the middle of that uh, volleyball match, so um, he gets it.
0: Yeah, I, I do, and I think uh, I think the more people have watched his cooperation with the Durham probe and others, I uh, that they're very impressed that uh, he helped help them get to the bottom of this. It probably wasn't easy in the beginning because you first you don't want to believe your agency did that, and you know some of these people you might may have been around them before, but over time as he as he's had a chance to review stuff, my 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 own reporting indicates that he's become pretty dismayed and and uh, was fully cooperating with the Durham probe, which probably is good for for America. Kevin, last thoughts, as you look back now at the state of America and state of law enforcement, we went through the, you know, the defund police moment here, and then I think that's calmed down a little bit. We've gone through the Capitol riots, uh, the Russia scandal. Um, what does uh, law enforcement need going forward to just make sure that it has the American people and the political establishment giving it the tools and the resources and the, and the respect that it needs to do its job?
1: Yeah, I I actually wrote an article on this uh recently because I think it's vitally important. Um technology is is uh increasing so rapidly and so powerfully that um we need to have an honest conversation and to, uh, about uh law enforcement use of these kinds of tools. There are many many ways that law enforcement can follow people around yep. and find out who the bad guys are and we want those tools available to find legitimate bad guys who want to hurt other people. Um, but you know the, the the fear is the pendulum you put those tools in the hands of the intelligence community and law enforcement and they will be misused. Can't blame them. We saw them misused with the FISA court on a on a US citizen right. in, in the Russia collusion thing. So you know, there should be checks and balances. The other pendulum is that the privacy advocacy is, is so loud that it, it stunts law enforcement's ability to, to uh, use these powerful tools to find abducted children, to, to find serial uh, killers and, and rapists and right. those who are doing serious damage in our communities. And um, so where do we strike that balance? Um, So the big conversation I would love to see happen is, um, you know, what are the proper boundaries and let's let's include the privacy side in these conversations uh, so that we know that with transparency that law enforcement is deploying uh, these tools in a way that is only directed against those where probable cause exists to to use them against them. And, 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 and and also knock down the fallacy because I chuckle about it all the time. Because of TV and Hollywood, Americans tend to believe that law enforcement and the CIA and others can and will watch everybody all the time. Right. And
0: it doesn't happen. No, No.
1: the FBI doesn't have the resources to to cover all the bad guys, uh, even a fraction of the bad guys. So they don't have the luxury of looking at innocent people, nor do they want to. But again powerful technology needs powerful controls
0: yeah now that's exactly right And i think if people look back at the era where you you made the last round of adjustments you can see the care and concern uh that the bureau has for for americans privacy they want to catch the bad guys but they don't want to do anything that goes beyond that and uh it's always a balancing act and episodes change emotions but um when you look at the intent, particularly the the, the reforms and changes you made a, a decade, a little bit of a decade ago, there, there was a lot of thought. This wasn't stuff thrown together on the wall. There's been a lot of thought and dialogue. And it sounds like we're probably at a point in our country's history to have that conversation one more time. <laughs>
1: It, it's going to happen. I yep. believe you're right, John. It's, it's and it's got to happen. Um, I, it's it's amazing, the kind of the technology that's emerging out there right now.
0: It is. Yeah, it yeah. is. It is. It's chilling, but it's also opportunistic if it's deployed the right way. So if it
1: saves a life. Yep. yep.
0: Yeah, we're going to be happy for it. So, mm-hmm. Kevin, I can't thank you enough. I, I learned so much from you every time. I just uh, I, I know our audience will have learned a lot from you today, and we're, we're so grateful for your service and also all the wisdom you impart uh, as we try to go through some pretty, pretty tricky issues. Terrific. Thank
1: you. I'm honored that you asked me.
0: Thank you. Uh, same here. All right. Have a great weekend.
1: All right. Take care, John.
0: Thank you. All right, Bye-bye. folks, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll wrap things up for the day. I could stay here forever.
1: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort
0: meets convenience. Download the app or visit carvana.com today. All right, folks, that wraps it up for today's edition of John Solomon Reports. Thanks for joining me. I love what Kevin Brock told us. I always learn something when I'm in his presence, and I hope you did too. A lot to chew on about civil liberties, the FBI, January 6th Capitol riots, The Russia case. Lots of things to learn. I hope you have a great weekend. May God bless you. If you're hungry, grab some of those Kansas City steaks out of the freezer. That's what I'm doing. I'm grilling out this weekend because it's supposed to warm up. But uh, remember to support all of our great advertisers. And when you need a news fix, just head over to justthenews.com. We'll always keep you up to date on the breaking stories and good investigative stories like the one we brought you, Daniel Payne. All right, folks, it wraps it up. Have a great weekend. God bless. We'll be back on Monday.